Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, and our special guest today, Sebastian Sam, formerly of Cal Track and Field, and more recently, LinkedIn. For the benefit of our listeners, Sebastian, I'm going to start with a little background on you. Sebastian attended high school in San Jose, where he was section champion in the 800 two straight years and competed in several U.S. Junior Olympics meets. From there, Sebastian came to Cal, where he competed in the 400 and 800. He posted Cal's top times in the 800 in both 2009 and 2010, was a two-time All-American, and graduated in 2012 with a degree in American Studies with a focus in entrepreneurship and innovation. Sebastian, thank you for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. So can you tell me the story of how you came to your first sales role with the medical device company, Carl Stortz Endoscopy? And in your response, I'm hoping that you can describe the steps that got you there, beginning with the day that you graduated Cal. For example, how did you make the choice to go into medical device sales in the first place? Why were you drawn to sales? Describe the networking, interview process, training and so forth that required to ladder into that first sales role. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And one I typically go back to probably on a monthly basis to re-inspire myself. Um, I've been in sales now for almost 10 years. And I look back on how I got here and it did start with that role at Carl Stortz Endoscopy. Uh, It really goes back to about May of 2012, where a string of injuries basically caused me to say, I'm no longer going to run track. And I had to take that deep swallow and I had to look at myself in the eye and say, what's next? Like most athletes do. And what's next for me was, hey, let me hop on a website called called LinkedIn and find a job. And let me start messaging as many people as I possibly could. And this was back in the time when there was like Facebook and instant messaging and things like that. So uh, direct messaging was pretty easy for me. And I just sent messages, as many messages as I possibly could to recruiters and to Cal alumni. Turns out that one of those Cal alumni um, has a dad who owns this medical device company. And I had a dinner with him one night and my friend. And while we were at dinner, 
simply put, he said, Hey, I have the opportunity for you. I know you went to Cal. I know you were an athlete. We're looking for diverse professionals in this leadership rotational program. And I said, okay, it sounds pretty interesting. Uh, the main thing that caught my eye was, uh, caught my ear was that it's German. Carl Stortz is a German um, medical device company and I'm half German. So I said, okay, I'll give this guy some time. And it turns out that the rotational program that they were creating allowed for six months in sales, six months in marketing, six months in product, six months in customer service or customer success. I was like, great. I have absolutely no idea what I want to do after my track career. And this little opportunity will shed light into every job function that I might possibly need to know. And then I can down the line in two years, I can just pick what job function I like. Um, it was in that process of going from product to sales to marketing where sales just stood out. I mean, I had the opportunity to work with some of the biggest sales guys at the company. These guys were, were selling millions of dollars worth of medical equipment to hospitals. Uh, they were national leaders at what they did. And I essentially just rode their coattail. I figured out exactly what a sales rep does. Um, they pointed me in the direction I needed to go from day one. A lot, a lot of it was grunt work, but at the end of the day, a lot of sales is grunt work. And they just exposed me to the role. I was out in the field. I had a bag filled with literally, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness. Will Smith is out yep. in San Francisco slaying like a medical box. Basically what my job was. Uh, I was entering the basements of hospitals. Uh, I was in the operating room uh, for hours on end. And I was speaking with people on purchasing and finance uh, people in scrubbing, cleaning the medical devices and equipment. Um, so it just allowed me to gain exposure to not only sales, but just what people do in work. <laughs> like, I had no idea graduating from Cal what people did at nine to five. Um, this role exposed me to all of that. Um, and that's where I just officially picked up my knack for sales. Well, that's an incredible story and, you know, of where you got through that transition um, in your career. But I want to back up a little bit beginning to like that beginning part when you had this difficult transition from athletics, which, by the way, is something that every athlete is going to go through at some point in their lives. And in this outreach, I'm wondering, did you get a lot of no's too when you're sending out these messages to recruiters, Cal alumni? Like, how did you push through those no's if you did get them? Yeah. Always got nose. Yeah. And um, same thing with being an athlete. Like no one really wants to believe you're going to be the, the fastest 800 meter runner at Cal. Until so you put in the work to do it and, and you just show people. Right. And it, it's similar when you're reaching out for a job. The no is really a no response. You're not going to get a reply from everybody. And that's how you want it. That's how you think it's going to happen. You want it to happen where every single message you send is perfectly curated and it's sending to the, the perfect person at the right time. And they have all the time in the world to respond to you. And that is not the case at all. So back then, I remember just hopping on to LinkedIn.com and uh, allow the ability to send a connection request to somebody and add a personalized note. 
uh, was how I overcame uh, some of the some of the barriers to which I did not need to pay for a subscription on LinkedIn. Uh, the barrier of LinkedIn is they try to filter you into paying for something and you can send a connection request to somebody and add a 150 character note. So I created the perfect 150 character pitch of myself, me being an athlete, me going to Cal and my explicit interest in their company, all within like that Twitter format, 150 characters. Um, and I remember sending something like 50 connection requests a day. Uh, sending 50 of these messages a day during my last month or two of being a senior at Cal. Um, so, so talking about the no, it was really just no reply, no response. And I just kept sending more and more and more. And that's what fueled me to figure out, okay, what is the perfect silver bullet here? Uh, there is none. So I just kind of did the spray and pray approach. It worked out. People started to respond. I had informational interviews with companies like Apple and Facebook, ones in technology companies in the Bay for the most part. Sounds like speed really dating. Wanted. It definitely was speed <laughs> dating. I mean, I would love to have more dates at that time. I was not getting many replies, but the ones that did reply, I think it was for sure worth it. Yeah. I really want to dive into that 150 character note that you use that our student athletes can talk about. Um, but I want to do that a little bit later in the podcast. I'm also um, curious because I've heard that medical device companies really like hiring athletes at, as salespeople. And do you think there's truth to that? And if so, what are the qualities or skills that medical device companies value in student athletes and why? Yes, I do think medical device companies go after athletes. You'll probably see the number one medical device company that's out there is named Stryker. And their campus recruiting efforts are relentless. And they go after athletes nonstop. You'll probably see their banners out in like baseball fields as, as uh, you know, uh, sponsors of, of schools and universities. Um, so, yes, I think medical device companies go after athletes and why it's it. I'll give you a good example with track. Um, my schedule as a track athlete at Berkeley was to, to wake up every day around 6 or 6.15 for a morning run. That morning run lasted until about 7. I had a little time to shower, change, and get ready for class at 8. That means I needed to sneak in a breakfast in there somehow at Golden Bear Cafe GBC. And I had class from eight to two. I had practice from two thirty to five. I had training table from five to six. I had weights from six to seven. I had ice bath from seven to seven thirty. I had to go over to Unit Three Cafe by eight o'clock so I can sneak in a meal. And then it's dang near eight nine o'clock. And then I had to take on the rigorous workload of a Cal Berkeley education, right? I did this every single day for four years. Not only that, cow track, and we compete well into the summer, even until August sometimes. And when does school start? August, September, right? So I kind of pick up and do the same thing year after year for four years. So when you have that sort of mentality of grit, dedication, right? Self-discipline, leadership, goal orientation, these are all things that I just naturally practiced without really talking about all the time as an athlete. It's just all about the action. And athletes get that. 
they understand these soft skills, these qualities are important to finishing any goal that we put in front of us. So now imagine being uh, a hiring manager at Stryker, where you're hiring sales reps that you want to have all these skills, self-discipline, leadership, uh, dedication, right? Um, who wouldn't want that in, in their employee? And in sales in particular, you're going after a quota. You're going after a number. What that means is you have $100,000 worth of equipment in your bag that you need to sell to a hospital. And your manager is telling you, okay, you have $100,000 today. I need you to get to $150,000 within the next three months. So go out and sell, Sebastian. What do you do? You just take on those soft skills that you've learned since you were four years old, five years old as an athlete and you apply it to your role. So I think a lot of they, they found that science out at medical in medical device industry, especially in sales roles to know that that's what leads to success. I have a good feeling a lot of the recruiters there used to be athletes and a lot of the sales reps are athletes and they become managers and they try to find athletes and repeat the formula. Um, so that's that's my inkling there. Uh, that's what led to my success at Carl Stortz. Um, so I'd highly recommend most athletes get started in that way, too. Yeah. Hey, can we um, you, you mentioned a couple things. I want to drill into the uh, medical device sale, as it were. Uh, are you selling to doctors? Are you selling to hospitals or are you selling to both? And you even mentioned in there in your first description, something about like a finance guy. And I, so I want to get a sense for like when you're selling for the, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, what does that mean? And how do you, you know, it sounds like sometimes you're going through the basement door. Sometimes you're going through the front door. Sometimes you're in the operating room. Can you kind of just give us a sense of the, you know, like what the sales motion is, all the people you touch yeah. and like who, who needs to be convinced in order to buy something? Yeah. Here's a good analogy. My son, whenever he wants some cookies out of the cupboard, he looks at me because I'm closest to him, perhaps in the kitchen. And he says, Dad, can I have some cookies? And he runs over, he grabs the cookies and brings them back. And he looks at me and he tries to sell me on the cookies. He said, Dad, I'm really hungry. Dad, I, I want food. Dad, can I have the cookies? And what's the first thing I usually say? Go ask your mom. <laughs> Go ask your mom. There, there are multiple stakeholders involved for Elio to, to get that cookie that he wants. So sometimes he might look at me and say, dad, can I have a cookie? And he just runs right by me and goes to mom now. Same thing in, in any sale. Any sale takes seven decision makers in the, in the business to business world, right? I'm a business and I'm selling a product to another business. It takes seven influencers, seven decision makers to make that sale happen. This is real data. Now, in the medical device world, I had to figure out who those seven people were. I have a piece of, uh, of medical equipment. In my days, it was a scope that attaches to a camera that attaches to a whole like computer operating system within an operating room. So the scope that I had, I, I needed to bring it to a surgeon. And I said, here, surgeon, like, please use this on your next case. I think this scope will have vivid imagery for you and, and um, your procedure will take half the time using this scope. 
how did I, how was I able to get into the operating room? I can't just walk right in. Well, I, I needed to walk up to the hospital and build a good relationship with the security guard. And I need to say, Hey man, where are you from? You know, you look familiar. Are you from San Jose? Oh no, you're from Los Angeles. Oh, anyways, I, I spark a conversation with him. Oh, by the way, can you point me in the direction of, um, the, the nurse who helps support this, this surgeon? I make good friends with the security guard. He points me to the nurse. Okay. There are essentially multiple blockers involved in order for me to get to the surgeon. And a short, short story here. I, I just find ways to build relationships with these blockers to get me to the decision maker, right? Decision maker is the, the, the surgeon who has my scope. I'm in the operating room with them. And he says, Sebastian, the scope is great. I want this. I can't pull $20,000 out of my pocket and hand it to you. You got to go talk to Kevin who's in finance and he's going to buy it for me. Well, there's another decision maker. There's one of the seven, right? So now I need to form a relationship with Kevin. I need to figure out what does Kevin like? What gets Kevin going? Was was he an athlete? Where did he go to school? So um, is, long story Ke- short. In this, in this context, uh, does Kevin work for the hospital and the flag of the hospital, like say CPMC or Sutter uh, Health, or does he actually work for the doctor? He works for the hospital. Got it. He works for the hospital. So then there, are there any like additional, uh, let's just say uh, hurdles that relate to, you know, say the safety of your device or, you know, the certifications maybe that uh, it has to have before it can become eligible for use in that hospital? Yeah. Are there, do they, is he the person that's going to vet those things or does that even, does that exist? That's sort of the, so that's a great question. The brand name of the company I worked for got me in the door most of the time. Got it. Carl Stortz is a really well-known medical device company and anything that we created had to be approved. And I already had, you know, we can't walk in with something that FDA or whatever hasn't even approved to be in a hospital. We had to work through that old logistical approval process, certifying process on our own as a company, Carl Stortz. And then we can go to market and say, hey, hey, surgeon, here's something that's approved that I think you should use. Right. Um, so, you know, I had my company that I was working for, Kevin and the, the hospital and the doctor, they were all working for theirs. I was the in sales. I was the liaison between my company and what we were offering and the hospital purchasing it. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, Kevin then in finance would be the person to verify all this sort of information. Is Sebastian a real liaison? Um, does he actually work with Carl Stortz? Uh, is this medical device even approved? These are the things that I would essentially shepherd into the hospital and inform him on. So, you know, I'm essentially an educator as a sales rep, too. That's a, a good word to mm-hmm. include there. I'm educating someone like Kevin and the surgeon and Susie, the nurse and the security guard, all to build trust. So this this sounds like uh, an enterprise sale. Would you agree? Is this. Like, or is it more of a retail sale or, you know, like, let's just say a retail sale might be somebody going into a Verizon uh, store to buy an iPhone and yeah. like they're, they're the decision maker, you know, an enterprise sale is, you know, the sort of what you described where there's like levels of um, uh, decision, like in different 
divisions of the, the firm. You know, you've got the finance sign off. You might have a supply chain sign off. You've got the actual user, the doctor has to sign off and so forth. Uh, so is this is medical device sales hybrid or is it is it full enterprise? And think think now forward a little bit to your your LinkedIn job where you're selling. You don't have to necessarily yeah. contrast it to LinkedIn, but I'm just trying to yeah. draw draw a distinction for our listeners so they can understand, like, what does enterprise sales look like? And like, what does retail sales look like? And yeah, where does medical, medical, medical device sales fall in the middle of that? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, retail sales, I mean, a good example, there's a, a sports shop right across from Edwards Stadium. Everybody knows it. It's a little small shop, has running shoes, tennis rackets, basketballs. You walk in there, the owner of the shop is a sales guy. At the end of the day, he's selling you mm-hmm. his equipment. I walk in there at 20 bucks, I walk out with a basketball. Right. Car dealerships, yeah. same thing. Car you know, dealerships. It's... You mentioned, you know, going in to buy a cell phone. Same thing. It's very transactional, right? And that there's not many influencers that I need to incorporate into that sale. I know exactly what I want. I want a cell phone. I go in there. They sell me a cell phone. I only need to interact with one person. Even I think the that's software, kind of yeah. The software, even a lot of the software companies, you know, you could almost say that LinkedIn is both retail sales and enterprise sales, depending on what division you're in because, you know, ultimately a lot of the, um, the consumer facing, uh, you know, websites or web services that, that we all, you know, purchase these days are retail sales organizations. They're trying to convince you. Yeah. yeah. Not like some other guy who's, you know, who's like, you know, checking to see whether the website's products are legit first. And then like, you can, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. Um, medical device for sure is a lot more of an enterprise sale um, just because of the number of and pe- people you need to involve. Also something to consider how many people work at that T-Mobile store or phone store and, or shoe store compared to how many people work at that hospital. Right. It's probably 15,000 people working at a hospital sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have to navigate that entire situation. It's enterprise because there's so many people involved in making that business happen. Uh, whereas something um, like a, a shoe store or a phone store, you're only interacting with a few folks uh, to get what you need from them. Right. So. Yeah. You know, one last thing I'll mention, uh, I've got a friend named Ron Herson, uh, who's a very expensive, experienced entrepreneur and, and now sort of bigger company executive at uh, Adobe. He's got this great phrase, though that relates to enterprise sale, which is uh, swarm the org. And you swarm the org, like you go like all through it for lots of different reasons, like the, the practical ones that you mentioned, because in fact, there are lots of decision makers along the way. But there's also another one, which is, you know, in a lot of companies, the, the person who you're hoping to get to, sometimes they leave. And so if, yeah. if you're in a, if you're in a six month or an or a nine month or a 12 month sales cycle, which isn't, uncommon in enterprise sales, uh, you better know like the next guy too, you know, (laughs) otherwise, you know, you've just like sunk, you know, a lot of time and you're going to be, your forecast is going to be way off. That's probably the biggest fault of sales is people thinking it only takes one person to get the job done. And like you mentioned that six months in, we all want our product to be sold in, in a day or a week. Some products are. But most, especially in enterprise or, or SaaS, take a month, even to a year, even two years sometimes, depending on how big the deal is. Um, but yeah, if you only have one contact and that person ends up leaving, 
that means you have to restart back in square one. Imagine, you know, a year or two of work being wiped away just because you put all your faith, all your eggs in one basket, you know, good call out. Yeah, for sure. Sebastian, for the benefit of our listeners who may be considering a career in medical device sales, I want to dive a little deeper into just the regular day of the life of a medical device salesman. You said you're on the road, you know, driving from hospital to hospital with samples of products in your trunk. But like, you know, how much time were you spending on the road? And were there times when you were cold calling all days, you know, in the field on others? Can you describe the daily schedule? You know, when you wake up, when you go to bed, what are the tasks and so forth? Yeah. My territory in medical device sales was from Santa Monica in Los Angeles. So I was in LA all the way down to San Clemente, which is near San Diego. Imagine how many hospitals are in between that sales territory. I was accountable to touch each one of those hospital as an account. I had to build relationships with each hospital that was in my territory. So, I mean, there's dang near hundreds of them. So my daily like practice was to spend the first half of the day uh, building stronger relationships with the accounts that I already had a relationship with. And my second half of the day was to find new accounts, find new hospitals to be reaching out to, new hospitals to be stepping into. And that's how I divided my day. Um, the first half of the day, again, building strong relationships meant I was in the hospital with a surgeon who I've built a relationship with, and I'm in a case. I'm literally watching him perform, um, you know, removing cancer from somebody's neck, removing cancer from somebody's brain. Um, these are cases I, I've seen with my own eyes. I've smelt the burnt uh, smell you get when you walk into an operating room every day. And I spent, you know, first five, six hours of my day doing that. And the more often you're around and showing your face, as you know, the easier it is to build trust with somebody. So I would just try to be present. I would try to be there as a consultant to answer the questions of the surgeon. And a question for me as a sales rep is literally, hey, Sebastian, I'm using these forceps that are going through a scope and I'm looking at this patient's throat. And they'll turn to me and say, Sebastian, is it, is it OK if I use the forceps this way to, to, to cut this part of the throat? It's a pretty serious question to ask a 22, 23 year old just graduating from college. But uh, again, being having that that leadership skill, that presence to know and be confident and say, I've done my research. Yes, you're allowed to cut that with these forceps. Um, you know, that kind of moment just builds this common thread, this trust with a doctor. And I tried to replicate that as much as I could. Um, the, the A lot of driving in between there. Right. And L.A. traffic is no joke. So I might even just go to one or two hospitals from one case to the next in the morning from 6 a.m. to 12 noon. Um, the next half of my day, I might just head home and open up my laptop or go to a cafe nearby or a restaurant. And great part is the company is usually sponsoring that meal because I'm on the clock and I can eat reimbursed lunch back to the company. And I'm sitting down, I'm opening up my laptop and I'm identifying different customers that I can reach out to. And by reaching out again, it's starting at square one, calling the, the administrator that works at the hospital. Hey, can you get me in contact with this doctor or this nurse? Um, so essentially, as a sales rep, I had a, a book of business that my company shared with me. Hey, Sebastian, here's 50 hospitals 
in San Clemente and San Diego for you to reach out to. And here's their phone number. Start calling. So the second half of my day was kind of cold outreach, trying to find more people to build those relationships with that I spent my first half of the day doing. So I would much rather be, and back then I remember I'd much rather be in the operating room, um, just observing what's going on, hearing the beep of the systems, watching everything on display on these beautiful monitors. And uh, the, the second half of the day was a little bit more tough. Again, it comes back down to the nose. Who wants to be told no over and over and over and over? You don't want to be that uh, nosy, annoying sales guy, but it's part of the job. If you want business, you, you just have to sell. Interesting. I'm too. also. <clears throat> hey, hey, Rob, can I just make one quick interjection? Yeah. There's a, it sounds like the, uh, you know, one part of your day is like Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, mm-hmm. he, you know, just, and then, another, and then another part of this, uh, is the, you know, the trusted advisor, you actually use the word educator, mm-hmm. you know, which is a really different image than let's just say, you know, like the people on the phone on the movie, the Wolf of Wall Street or any other boiler room or, you know, like, you know, the stereotypical, like pushy car salesman or whatever. It, 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 it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound anything like that. Does it? Oh, not at all. You have a, you have somebody's body on a, on a table in front of you. Are you going to, are you going to mess up someone's dad or brother or sister? No, there's no way you have to take this seriously. Um, you can't, you can't mess up. Uh, well you can mess up, but you just, you know, you have to do everything in good faith, you know, with a good intention, a good mind and heart coming in. Um, and, and doctors have been doing this for years and and they see right through, if you walk into the room and and you have this boastful presence and you're proud and, and you think what, whatever you're saying is going as a sales rep, I'll think again, these guys have experience. These guys have wisdom. Uh, and they'll call you out quickly and they'll tell you to get out of your, uh, get out of their operating room. If, if you know, you're being a pest or you don't sound yeah. like you're adding value for sure. Yeah. It also seems there, there's one other thing I just wanted to quickly say that this job in medical sales, uh, it sounds like they have the, the, uh, the, the we'll call it the farmer who's like mm-hmm. cultivating their existing sales, their existing companies and the hunter you know, the person who's out prospecting for new business, opening new accounts, all compressed into one role. That isn't always the case. You know, there are some companies where that's divided and you have like, say, a customer success group. And then you have this sort of, you know, externally facing, um, you know, hunter group. But, huge call, uh, it, out. Huge call you, out right there. Would, would you say that's true in, in medical device sales? Not just the yep. company you've seen, but other ones where that's sort of compressed or is that just a function of your that one company? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a great call out. And it's a good way to think about sales in general, because most there are two types of sales roles. Like you mentioned, there's a hunter. I'm going to find business. And then there's the farmer, ones who are kind of reaping in business because they own the set number of accounts. Right. They already own them. Um, medical devices. Definitely. You're in a hybrid sales role. You're finding business for half the day, like I said. And then you're um, collecting business. You're making sure your business is nurtured um, like the farmer would for the second half of the day. And technology sales, the way that most organizations are set up are, are not hybrid. Uh, most of them are set up, like you mentioned, with an account manager. That account manager is the farmer. 
And then the account executive, the account executive is the hunter going after business. And then there are some other hybrid kind of roles in between like customer success or sales development, this sort of thing. I'm also, I'm also wondering, did you consider industries other than medical devices for your sales career? You know, for example, people sell financial products on Wall Street, ads for Silicon Valley tech firms, hardware for firms like Apple or HP. There's a wide away array of selling careers. And so I'm in, interested about the thinking, the factors that drove your decision. I know you had this conversation with the connection early on, but were there any other factors that really got you interested in medical device sales? really got me interested. <laughs> well, the pay was good. And I mean, that was a huge, I remember telling myself, like, I, I, I grew up from really, really humble beginnings with my family. Like I have two older brothers, a younger sister. My, um, my mom and dad came from Germany to the United States. We didn't have everything in the bag, everything we wanted at, at all times, um, growing up. So one of the things I knew I wanted when graduated from Cal was a pretty well-paying job. And I was like very honest with myself with that. And it, again, I didn't have ill intent with it. Um, I just wanted a savings account, something for my future. Uh, I wanted to buy the pair of shoes I've always wanted growing up and just having free reign to do it. So I told myself I want a well-paying job. Um, medical device pays really well. Majority of the contracts you're working with are well over a hundred thousand dollars, um, for each sale. And, uh, there are multiple sales throughout the month for each hospital you're working with. So it can be very lucrative. Um, now compare that with a job in marketing and advertising, depending on the company, right? It, it may not pay as well. And, and I kind of vetted that process as I, I reached out and, qualified, um, what people were doing in these phone conversations, um, back to the LinkedIn connection thing. Um, so well-paying job was one thing I, I remember being honest with myself with, and I, I'm definitely not the kind, I don't think I'm, I'm overly resilient where I can receive a no every single day, every single time I reach out for, for months on end until I get that one deal. Right. And the reason I say that is I wanted to work for a brand name. Um, a brand name was Carl Stortz in the medical device industry. I couldn't work for a very small marketing agency that no one has ever heard of just calling a hundred companies a day, hoping somebody picks up. That was also something I, I remember thinking to myself, I, I, I really just want a company that's established that has, um, you know, I can, build a 401k with and, and this sort of thing. Um, and, and Carl Stortz was that. They're the leading privately held medical device company in the world. So that was something else I considered. Um, and I, I remember trying a job once. I don't, I don't, I think it was sophomore year, maybe it was freshman year to sophomore year at Cal. Over the summer, I, I had like, you know, a month before I needed to start track. And I said, let me try to get some internship experience. And I tried to work for this small boutique sales company in Walnut Creek. Don't even remember the name of it, but I lasted two weeks because what they had me do day in and day out was go to San Francisco, drive in your own car, use your own gas, get there, go to each warehouse you see and ask them if they need things like toilet paper or paper for their printers. And 
I did it for two weeks and I was like, this knocking door to door is just not, not for me, especially representing a brand that nobody knows. <laughs> like That yeah. is a whole lot of resilience. And I, again, that just wasn't for me. Some people can do it. So those are well, a few you, factors. You, you've surfaced a really uh, important uh, you know, topic here, which is, you know, we're, we're trying to sort of distinguish between the different sales uh, jobs, the different sales opportunities, and, you know, to kind of like, not rank them, but, but at least to um, distinguish, you know, the elements of environment and so forth that, that like might make one alternative better than the other. Rob mentioned a couple of uh, sales jobs. I'm going to sort of tie this into your narrative. Like Rob mentioned, like selling financial products on Wall Street. You mentioned that medical sales uh, include really expensive devices. So because a lot of these sales jobs are, uh, have, have some element of commission in them, you know, clearly if you're selling something that's more expensive, uh, your gross dollars earned on that commission is probably going to be higher. So I have another question that relates to that. Like, so that's one dimension, you know, sort of how much, how much you earn per sale. You know, another is you mentioned uh, like the brand of the company, whether it's known or not, how difficult it's going to be for you to sort of get in the door with people. Uh, another one could be, you know, your whoever your sales leader is. And I'm even wondering if, you know, just the sensation of uh, I've always wondered if, if, you know, I think a lot of people, athletes seem to take sales jobs. And I've been curious about whether, you know, just the being in a position of influence, you know, you, you come out of you know your position of influence as an athlete, you feel strong, you feel motivated like you're doing something important. And then, you know, considering like where you might be able to continue those feelings and that impact, you know, may have a, have, have a, like, so then of all these different places where you can choose uh, to sell, I'm just wondering, do you think, do you think margin matters too, in addition with the actual like total sale price? Like what are, what are the considerations that like one of our listeners might, you know, let's just say, let's pick like three or four that they say, look, you know, apply these filters to the, the companies that you're considering and, and then like, you'll, you'll be able to stack them against each other a little bit better. Like, you know, maybe price of item, margin of item, whatever it is. Yeah. A lot of that comes down to what you're looking for as an individual. What is that skill you're hoping to develop? What is that thing that ignites you inspires you on a daily basis? Like I mentioned for me, okay. Commission needs to be right the margin of how much I'm making uh, for each sale I'm doing needs to be great. My commission for a hundred thousand dollar deal. And you know, if the company tells me you get 1% of everything you sell. I'm not going to work for that company. Was it 1% so, of uh, gross margin or was it 1% of the gross sale? 13% of the gross sale is typically what it was. 13% wow. of the gross sale. Yeah. Ah, well, well, that implies that the margins in medical devices are actually pretty good. Exactly. So I, to me, I, I think that the margin of the product that you're selling, you know, has a, has a direct influence on how much a company, uh, you know, is willing to, uh, let's just say, you know, commission their salesperson for selling it. If they have the margin in the first place, like if you're, you know, let's just say your gross margin on a product is 5% or 20% something small like that, like you're not going to be able to commission your salesperson as much as would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Definitely. I mean, um, I, well, we're, I can see your, your continuing your train of thought there. What are you thinking? Well, I mean, I, to me, I, I, this is sort of the same thing. If you're selling a financial product on Wall Street, you know, where you're, you're let's just say you're going to sell a, I don't know, a bond to a mutual fund. Yeah. Or if you're yeah. going to sell a piece of a medical device that, you know, costs like a, whether it's a striker gurney or, a, you know, an endoscope, you know, where these things cost like 50 or 60 or $80,000 a piece. Yep. Yeah. It's, you, you can make some coin that way. So and everyone, by the way, this, and no one should feel bad about wanting to make money. Right. Um, particularly when you're just coming out of college, that's a, that's one of the key things. Like you want to think about what are you interested in and also what sort of a lifestyle do you want to live? Um, and, you know, finding, you know, the nexus of those two things is often like a great way to, um, you know, make your choices. And, and then I think this position of influence thing is also potentially interesting. Like, uh, in sales, you can get right out there like day one, like you're not going to get, you're not going to be on like a, a line job someplace where, you know, you're a cog in the wheel. Like you yeah. are the tip, you're the tip of the spear. You're yeah. out there, you know, interacting with, you know, professionals learning about things from the front line. I think that's attractive to a lot of people. So if it sounds attractive to our listeners, like that would be a reason to consider sales. And I think the last thing too, is that, you know, sales, um, you sell in literally everything. If you're an entrepreneur, you're selling. If you're a parent, you're selling to your kids. Like if you're a business leader, no matter where you are, you're selling ideas to your uh, to your staff and your team. Yep. Um, and so it's it's an incredibly valuable skill, and it's it's really multi purpose. Um, anyway, that's that's my little rant. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I you'd be surprised at how many athletes don't really talk about money. Um, money being one of their aspirations upon graduating. I think like amongst friends, you might bring it up, but in a more formal setting with like a recruiter or, you know, I, uh, these le- workshops that I lead for athletes, I, I never hear athletes saying, yeah, I'm looking for a job that's going to pay me really well. I have, you know, $50,000 of student debt and I need to pay it off quickly. I don't want to, I don't want interest rates to hit me. Those words aren't really coming out of athletes' mouths. And I think they should happen a lot. Like that should happen. A lot. That should be a normal conversation. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a, definitely a train of thought for myself, you know, and again, um, money was a big factor. You mentioned an, another thing, working for somebody happens in any job. Who do you want to work with? Who do you want to report to on a daily basis? My managers that, that I mentioned uh, were amazing. They're awesome people. That's a huge part of my vetting process. Uh, and I recommend that to every person, every athlete graduating and you're looking for a job. Who is this person that's managing your time at the end of the day? What, you know, what kind of person is this? You know, are they just a quality human being? Um, or are they just so money hungry that no person in their sight matters? They, they just care about the bottom line. You want people that are flexible. You want people that are, are human, that are able to see you for you. You want people that can bring out the great qualities inside of you so that you can reach your potential. Um, a, a sounds, great, yep. I was going to say, it sounds like you're talking about a coach. Yeah, that's exactly it. Imagine working for, you know, think about your favorite coach. Imagine now going into the business world or any, any next job and 
that coach that you loved is now your manager that you can just work with on a daily basis. You can make great money doing it. They're pushing you to your potential and they allow you to think outside the box to help make their role better, to help make them look better to the company. Right. That's the kind of person you want to work for. Um, so definitely part of the qualifying process when looking for a job. Do you, uh, are you familiar with, uh, uh, do you know who Bill Campbell is? Bill Camp. No, Bill Campbell was, sounds familiar. He was the CEO of, uh, and chairman of Intuit, but it, he's more, more light, more recently, he's been gotten famous, uh, for coaching, you know, just about every CEO of every gigantic tech company that there is. Uh, and is popularized within the, the Silicon Valley tech culture, the importance of coaching as a senior leader. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody is interested, go look for a trillion dollar coach and you'll, you'll start to see the importance of, uh, like having a, you know, a great mentor coach as your, you know, boss as it were. Uh, so that, that'd be another thing you could do if you're considering sales jobs and you're looking across the leadership, you know, that you'll be reporting into who can you learn from the most? Mm. Uh, you know, one of our, uh, our previous, uh, conversations with, with, you know, uh, one of our Olympic swimmers, Bank Barron, who went on to be the uh, CEO of Coke and Kodak and Absolute Vodka and a number of other companies, um, you know, after consulting at McKinsey and, uh, you know, his, his guidance is basically go horizontal in the beginning, learn, be super curious, like try and find out as much about everything as you can early learn the scales, you know, before you start going vertical and uh, it'll just pay, it'll pay off in dividends down the line. Uh, and he talked a lot about coaching and, you know, when you listen to him, you can, you just get this sense that he would have been an amazing leader, right. an amazing right. coach, you know? And so like, if I were looking for a, a sales organization these days, I'd be looking for that too. Somebody like him who could really teach you a lot. Definitely. Definitely. And that's again, the great part of being a student athlete at the end of the day, I can find other student athletes at just about any company. Now I can find cow athletes at any company. I look at find those cow athletes, you know, find out what roles they're doing, especially if it's in sales, find out what roles they're leading and try to reach out to them. That's our common thread. That's our connective tissue. Um, and those are the people you're going to find that you love. So find those cow athletes. They're around. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that when we get to the LinkedIn uh, part of the LinkedIn hacks part of our uh, interview, which Rob was <laughs> cool. alluding to before. So nice. <laughs> so bringing the conversation over to this transition that you had from selling medical devices to this um, selling software um, at LinkedIn, can you describe what drove that transition? How did you find the opportunity at LinkedIn? And in order to set expectations and standards for our listeners, I'm hoping that you can describe the job search and the interview process and any antecedent networking you may have done. Yeah, the transition uh, to LinkedIn came when I, I wanted to support one of my friends in a philanthropic venture. So I was working at Carl Stortz and one day my, my friend approached me and said, see Bass, I'm uh, raising money for Parkinson's, uh, Parkinson's disease. And I want to climb the highest peak in every state in, in the United States. Can you join me? And, uh, his mother had Parkinson's um, and uh, he worked for the Michael Fox Foundation in New York. 
And, um, I said, yeah, I'll help you. So I literally told my management at the medical device company, hey, I'm going to go follow my friend and climb mountains. Imagine the look they gave me. <laughs> um, and I had just something inside of me said this was the right move. And I left the company. I said, look, I'm going to go on a leave of absence. I'll come back and I'm going to go climb mountains and raise money. Unfortunately, while training, um, he had to put a pause and, his, you know, because of his mother developed some other things. So the whole trip got paused. So here I am on a leave of absence about a month out of leaving the company. And uh, I'm just building more relationships at this point because I started to reflect and think, OK, do I still want to work in medical device? I grew up in Silicon Valley. I always had this knack for technology and interest in it and computers and building them when I was young. Um, so I, I spoke with one of my, fr my best friend, actually, we went to high school together. We went to Cal together and he started working at a company called LinkedIn. And he was a recruiter and he was just telling us all this great stuff that was happening. Free lunch, a cafe, come to work when you want work from home when you want. Everybody's relaxed, wearing jeans. Everyone's wearing t-shirts. You never need to wear a suit. And he just kept hyping up LinkedIn. And before you know it, he, he found this role in sales development that he referred to me and said, Sebastian, I know you can technically go back to your medical device company in LA, but come back to the Bay and work for, for my company, LinkedIn. And that's what I did. It was, it was a smooth transition from me expressing my interest uh, to him showing me the role, uh, to him introducing me to the manager for the role. Literally, it took three days from me meeting the manager to me being hired for that role. Uh, surprisingly, every single role I've taken at LinkedIn has happened that exact same way through like three to four day time period from me expressing interest with the manager to me getting hired. So I don't know if it's a LinkedIn thing or, <laughs> or what, but, um, that was, that was how I transitioned out of medical device and, and into LinkedIn. Um, the role that I transitioned into, uh, was basically at the bottom of the barrel in sales. I had a lot of sales experience, um, but I had to start at square one because I transitioned industries. And at, at that time I started as a sales development representative. And um, happy to get into what being a sales development rep is, but uh, that's where I started, and that was the transition. Yeah. First off, I want to say that your story um, hits home for me. My grandfather's lived with Parkinson's for about thirty years, so you, mm -hmm. you know, taking that that move, like that purpose driven move, um, that's particularly inspiring to me. So thank you for awesome. sharing that and for taking that step in your career. And um, I also want to start talking about the day-to-day -day of working at LinkedIn for our audience so they can decide whether they'd be interested in a career in software sales too. So can you paint a picture for our student athlete listeners of what a typical Tuesday looks like with your role at LinkedIn, a, a day in a life as it were? don't leave anything out. You know, what is the culture like? You talked about, you know, the, the dress and all that and, you know, who's on your team and who do you report to? What time do you start working? What time do you stop? Are you prospecting cold calling new customers and hunting growth? Or are you calling existing customers and selling follow on services, farming your growth? Tell us how you do your job. And what do you sell? Like, let's talk about selling <laughs> yeah. software too. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, 
it's a lengthy question. Where do I start? There's so much involved. Maybe like just why was I inspired to start working at LinkedIn in general? Sure. It, it came from the vision of the company. Let's create economic opportunity for everyone in the global workforce. Everyone. It's about two or three billion people in the global workforce. Let's help them. Let's says LinkedIn. And I said, okay. Um, it sounds philanthropic to me. Um, speaks to me. Let's work for them. So how do we carry out this vision at LinkedIn? Well, it's a software company. It's a professional network. It's online. What that means is the founder, Reed Hoffman, said to himself one day, let's take these in-person connections we're building, the ones that Sebastian was doing at a hospital, going door to door and knocking, and let's bring it online. So let's create this online network to uplift opportunities for people to find jobs. That's how it started. And uh, we created a software back in 2004 that allowed employers to post their jobs on a forum online and allowed people to apply to those jobs online. So instead of you handing your application in in person, you can just hand it in online. Well, that allows for a lot more scale. Through the years, more people started to join LinkedIn. And back when I joined LinkedIn in 2014, we were around 90 million people with a LinkedIn profile. And in sales in 2014, well, 90 million people with a LinkedIn profile, you can do a lot with that. You can start to advertise to these people. Okay, who are those shoe store owners in Berkeley that I can send an advertisement to? Let me look at people's profile and send an advertisement to them. We allowed for employers to post jobs. Those were our two main engines, advertising and, um, and uh, posting jobs. Uh, our third engine around that 2014 timeframe uh, was a, a division called Sales Solutions. It was our third biggest division. Sales Solutions helps sales reps sell on LinkedIn. I'm a sales rep. I'm trying to find a surgeon in Los Angeles. Let me type that in, surgeon, Los Angeles. And boom, here's a thousand profiles that pop up that I can send a direct message to. Sounds kind of similar to me reaching out to recruiters just a few years ago. Right. But now I'm helping sales reps sell on LinkedIn. So my, my entry, that's a, a bit of like the LinkedIn ecosystem at the time when I joined 2014 in sales development, the role that I came into, what I had to do was qualify opportunities. I needed to qualify companies as businesses that LinkedIn should work with and partner with. So sales development rep is what it sounds like. I need to develop a sale. I need to find a company. I need to find the right people at that company to reach out to, to build trust in a relationship with. And then I needed to share LinkedIn's offerings with them to say, hey, let me vet this. Are you actually a qualified company that should advertise on LinkedIn? So the division I was working at was LinkedIn marketing as a sales development rep. Uh, my my uh, uh, territory was all of healthcare across the United States. So any healthcare company, I was the sales development rep to qualify that company as one that should spend money on LinkedIn to advertise. Um, so my day to day was really cool because it started at like 9am and not 6am. So that was a big perk. Uh, we had a cafe at the bottom floor of our office so I can walk in and get free coffee. We had a kitchen on every single floor. 
where I can get any kind of candy I wanted, any kind of cereal I wanted, any kind of like Gatorade or juice soda that I wanted, uh, and any cereal that I wanted. That was a big perk for me. Um, and the typical day to day was just get into work. I'm in a cubicle type of area. And I was on, uh, I think the 17th floor of a sky skyscraper in San Francisco. One Montgomery was our office. And uh, I was, I just remember being able to look out all, all over San Francisco. That was kind of my view on a daily basis. I was in front of a computer, just like I am now, just like we have been during COVID. And, uh, this, I had a team of about 10 other sales development reps. They focused on different industries, right? I did healthcare, some did retail, some did entertainment, some did finance. And uh, our role was to essentially get handed a, an Excel sheet filled with all of the healthcare companies uh, that exist in the United States and phone numbers and names next to these companies. And we needed to build some sort of connection with these people next to the names on the Excel sheet, right? So here you are huddled around like 10 other people that are around your age, you know, 22 to 26 years old, recently graduated from college. And you're building camaraderie with your teammates standing next, sitting next to you in, you know, cubicle type of open format on a floor plan overlooking San Francisco. And you're calling upon healthcare companies. Um, the good part about a sales development role with a good brand at LinkedIn is that many of these healthcare companies are trying to reach out to LinkedIn. They're calling us. They're coming inbound, we call it. So outbound sales development means I'm doing a lot of calling. Inbound sales development means, hey, I'm receiving calls saying, hey, Sebastian, we want to work with LinkedIn. How do we get started? That was a great time for LinkedIn, especially in marketing. We were just getting started. And that role was awesome. It gave me just all the experience I needed um, to build connections internally at a really cool company like LinkedIn, uh, but then externally with these healthcare partners that I already had experience doing in medical device. Uh, so it was a very easy conversation for me to have. Um, I got paid on every single opportunity that I qualified. Um, once that opportunity was qualified and, and became real business for LinkedIn, essentially, as soon as they spent money on LinkedIn advertising, I got paid a small commission. Um, so I had to just qualify as many of those companies as, as I could in a month. And, and that was my role, sales development at LinkedIn. Can I, um, I'm, I'm going to just try and do a little bit of a, of a summary recap there. Yeah. Again, you know, you're consi- let's just say one of our listeners is considering this like LinkedIn as a, as a, as an opportunity, great environmental features, perks, yeah. a lot yeah. of those, like the lunches, the, you know, the lax dress code, the coming in at nine and so forth. Uh, I was also wondering, and it sounds like you did have some performance elements in your comp there that you just mentioned, but it wasn't all commission right now. You're at a company that, that probably has like a base and some exactly. performance. Is that right? So that's a, that's kind of a distinction from like a medical device job. That's going to be more heavily weighted to commission only. Yep. Exactly. Or, or really heavily sort of biased toward, toward commissions and quotas. Um, hot, what you kill your, you know, eat what you kill sort of, yeah. uh, environment. Uh, you know, and it's, I just want to touch on that for just a minute. It, it's a little dangerous to generalize, but you know, just give me a little latitude here. It's my understanding that quotas can cause some people stress. <laughs> I haven't heard of that before. Where did you, and, find, where did you hear that? You know, particularly like when people are thinking about new job, like would I want to take this job? 
like, oh my God, I've got to go. What if I don't sell, I'm not going to make any dough. And, right. you know, it's, that can put some people completely off of, you know, um, you know, selling as a career altogether. So can, can you, but I know at LinkedIn, it's a little different. Can you talk about how your compensation plan works? You know, I, it might have some RSUs tied to it. It might have base. It might have some, these performance elements and like, how did you more generally this, this, you can sort of think back to your medical device sales. How'd you get comfortable with this sort of sink or swim, you know, transactional performance environment of selling and how did you systematize your approach? Yeah. You know, to make that less scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, fight or flight is a very uh, good way to put this in in medical device sales. If if you're not fighting to close business to, to make the sale happen, you're not getting paid. If you don't sell, you're not making money. And then turn around and go to many technology companies, especially in a sales development role. It's, Hey, we'll pay you a base amount. And you know, this is, tens of thousands of dollars you get paid every every two weeks right you'll get your two-week check and once a month we'll give you a commission check and that commission check is hey everything you sell you get a cut of it right so that's how most technology sales roles uh comp plans compensation plans are handled um any rsus or or stock or anything else too or yep at that time linkedin was not a public company um, so we had restricted stock units, RSUs. That means that you have equity in your company. Essentially, they say, hey, Sebastian, here are 10,000 shares, for example, of LinkedIn stock. You have equity. So one day LinkedIn is going to go public and these stocks, these RSUs, will transfer into public stock. And once they IPO, that you can cash out for money. It's equity. You have equity in the company you're working for. Uh, my privately held company, Carl Stortz, I didn't receive real, um, um, or I didn't receive stock units at all. Uh, it was just commission, getting paid well. LinkedIn was, here's a base pay, here's some commission, as well as here's some stock for you because we want you to have equity in our company. Um, and that allowed comfort at the end of the day to know that I didn't need to wake up and the, the money that was coming in every two weeks was going to happen and everything else, all the other overperformance was just the cherry on top. And it was up to me to decide if I wanted that cherry to, to, you know, if I wanted to be a small cherry or if I wanted to be a mango flopping into my, into my milkshake. Mm-hmm. Nice so I, you know, I, I just worked my ass off. I, I worked really hard to make sure that commission happened. Um, and it did. Uh, I got promoted from sales development in seven months, uh, which at that time was pretty unheard of. Usually it takes around two years, but I overperformed. I took my experience from uh, medical device and, and just crushed it in my role and became an account executive at LinkedIn in seven months. And were there, uh, were there accelerators, uh, like when you go beyond your quota where you start earning even more than the normal, you know, cut or. Yep. So a good call out here is most sales reps have a quota, right? A quota means, again, here's $100,000 that you need to sell. You can sell more than $100,000. And that would be be considered your accelerators. If you sell more than $100,000, we'll pay you more commission on every sale you make. 
So an accelerator would be, hey, we'll pay you 5% on every sale up to $100,000. Anything more than $100,000, we'll pay you 10%. We'll double your commission. So it's in the best interest of, of people to just do really well and sell more. Yeah. Yeah, that really aligns interests, you know, as does, you know, both uh, incentive stock options and RSUs in the sense that they, if the company does well, you're doing great there too. Um, yeah. Do you, um, I want to talk, let's, let's talk about the system, systems that you use personally to achieve and exceed those quotas. And I, I want to sort of tie that into, uh, you know, another question, kind of, this is sort of like, what makes a good seller and what's a bad seller? Let's, yeah. you know, and let's, uh, instead of thinking about the outcomes, let's think about the systems, you know, that, that you used to make the quota performance, you know, a not scary and B to knock it out of the park. Like what are the, what are the important systems that a seller might want to replicate? Yep. Great question. And my answer to this question is I was a really, really, really good 800 meter runner. Why was I a great 800 meter runner? It wasn't because I could run two laps fast. It was because I can run really, really, really great 200 meters times four. I can run 200 meters times four in a race to equal my end. How did I fine tune my approach to run really fast 200 meters? Well, I practiced over and over and over with my coach. I practice every day. I included 200 meter intervals in every practice. I included 400 meter intervals in every practice, 600 meter intervals in every practice or 100 meter intervals in every practice. And if I close my eyes and get on a track right now, um, I, I mean, I could run a 30 second, 200 like that to the, to, to the T to the second. And I, I share that kind of process, that sort of mentality with you because the same thing happens in sales. You're provided with, a number, $100,000, and you need to put the processes in place over the duration of a year to meet that $100,000. So let's break that year up into 12 months. So on a monthly basis, how much do I need to bring in in order to reach $100,000? Okay, now based off of that monthly, how what practices do I need to put on every single week for four weeks to make that uh, number happen, right? So it's about finding a process that breaks out that bigger number into smaller chunks to smaller chunks where you can put a repeatable process in place to reach your goal. The repeatable process on a weekly basis was if I send this number of emails on a weekly basis, I'll receive this many returned emails. Out of this many returned emails I receive, X number of them will say yes, Y number of them will say no. And I try to repeat that process week after week, sending emails, conducting phone calls or asking for referrals to businesses um, all through technology on my computer for the most part or on the phone. That would allow me to get the number on a weekly basis, monthly basis and then annual basis. Right. So um, that is always the process. I even I even use that same process today in my in my sales career. Um, but it's about thinking of a greater number and how do we shrink that number down to something on a weekly or monthly basis and try to hit that number or goal and then try to repeat it. Yeah, people talk about this, is, this is like the sales funnel, essentially, you know, that, yeah. that, that, con that contemplates, you know, the yield, 
you know, from activity one, which is number of contacts, how many people respond, and then of those who respond, how many convert and so forth. Yep. Yeah. And then just exactly. systematizing that, that, that gives you a sense of how, how much work you need to do daily you know, to exceed or to overperform. Exactly. Yeah. Numbers yeah. don't lie. What do you, um, uh, that's, that's great. Cause that actually does take a lot of the worry out of these. I mean, it's, you can systematize just about anything Yep. and that's how you would systematize, uh, you know, this, you know, sort of scary idea of like, how am I going to get to that big number? Yeah. And then I mean, that, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it's kind of scary to think I, I need to send out a hundred emails today. How do I do it? Well, okay, let's shrink that down further. What software is out there that will help me send a hundred emails with a click of a button? Yeah, that exists. So in sales development, I was taught these sort of software programs that will allow me to scale my process of sending hundred emails within seconds or within minutes. Right. Cause all I needed to do then was write one email. So I'd write that email out. I would maybe uh, insert company name here brackets where I can customize certain fields in the email like company or first name or last name or phone number or address. Um, and I would literally just uh, write out one email template with those brackets, plug it into a software. That software allows me to click send and I'll send it out to 100 people at once. So again, 100 emails sounds like a lot if you write them individually, but if you write one email sending to 100 people with a click of a button, it sounds a lot easier. Okay, let's let's return to the subject of good seller, bad seller. What do great sellers yeah. do and what a kind of like, you know, average or mediocre sellers do? Great sellers assess the needs of companies, assess the needs of their buyer and come up with a solution that fits their need. Great sellers find the needs of their buyer and come up with a solution that fits that need. So how do you do that? Well, what are, what are the, what are the sort of uh, sensibilities that, that allow you to find the needs of your buyer? Google is a powerful thing. I love to say, do your research. Yeah. Before you hop into an interview, like do some research to figure out who this person is and, 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 you know, why they even decided to take this interview with you. Were they an athlete? Are they coming from the same town you're from? Um, did, you know, did they run the 800? <laughs> so they decided to take the call and they're interested. Uh, same thing for your, for the people that are buying from you, right? Why did they decide to take a call with you? Do some research beforehand to figure it out. When you're doing that research, you're really just finding the need on your own, right? You're coming to a hypothesis of why this customer decided to take the call with me. And now as you enter the call, after doing some research, you feel confident with that hypothesis, right? Of maybe 30 minutes to an hour of research. And now you can kind of share with the customer, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is my hypothesis to why you took the call. And this is how I, I believe we can add value for you. But let's open up the conversation. Let's talk about your business. Why did you take the call? Was I right in this hypothesis in this area? Mm -hmm. Share with me a little bit more information there of, of maybe where I was going wrong, right? So this idea of coming with value to the buyer and then them sharing with you, no, that doesn't fit, or yes, this does fit our business. Uh, then it's kind of like, you know, you're collaborating, you're working together to make sure this need is met. And again, if your product is great, 
and it's filling the need that they really need at their company, then they're going to look like the knight in shining armor. You're really helping them, right? So essentially you're helping them pitch their employees on why they should, you know, move forward with your product that you're selling to them. Um, so it's really that, that value need relationship, um, that, that I've always, you know, grown into. Um, and a, a part of that you mentioned is, uh, the challenger sale is, is, is a good book. I, I reference for any sales rep. Um, but there's coming, a, uh, coming, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there's another two, uh, three, three steps to yes by Gene Bedell is also a great book. Uh, that's a great book. It, it, it really references. I think what I was just hearing from you, um, is that salespeople like learning, you know, researching, making sure that you're the most informed so that you can be an educator, which is a word you used previously. Yeah. And I think the second part that you were, it, you didn't say this, but you were actually exhibiting it is like trying to be a good listener, like asking yes. lots of questions, like learning about the customer's needs, just, just purely by being an excellent listener and having good questions because you did research. Is that more or less what you were I think Active that's listening is super important to being a great seller. Active listening and creating space to not talk. <laughs> like uh, a great part of sales is asking a question and then just being quiet. Do you think that uh, being uh, like charismatic is is required for selling? Actors are great sellers for sure. <laughs> Actors are great sellers. Like you know, there there are certain points like you have to sell the dream. Like people aren't going to do a ton of research on your product. You're, you are the liaison. Again, you are the one that's sharing this wealth of knowledge, this solution with them. You have to share the vision. All right. You have to get them excited. How do you get somebody excited? Well, you have to elevate your voice. Sometimes you have to turn on your webcam and make sure they can see your eyes and see you smiling, see you're presentable. Um, you know, again, and doing things like, uh, your research and, and pausing throughout the conversation, being that active listener are, are truly important too. Yeah. Anything that generates trust, I think is the right, whatever that is. I mean, for some people, you know, charisma actually might not be the thing that generates yeah. trust, but if you, if you, if you're uh, whoever your customer is, if you understand them well, essentially through, whether it's through listening or research or right questions, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of always the right place to focus, but uh, yeah. Innately curious. I'm always curious, always, always learning and always curious. Those are, are two things that work really well. And I mean, you, you made the point too. imagine your buyer is an introvert. Imagine they're someone who doesn't like interacting with people too much. And here you are trying to be the extrovert to sell them on something. Well, it's going to rub them in the wrong way. So really knowing who your buyer is, the persona of your buyer is, is really important not only their role in their company, right? And it goes back down to you have to sell to seven people within a company and yeah, gatekeepers. Yeah. Uh, but then knowing what is the exact personality of the person you're selling to. Um, usually before you hop on the call is important. I mean, even inside companies, people do this. Like this is why people take, you know, tests like Myers-Briggs and or 16 personalities or whatever else. Because you realize like, the you know, whoever it is that you're talking to in order for them to hear you you know, to absorb whatever it is that you have to say, like you have to sort of say it in a way that agrees with like the way they communicate, (laughs) you know? So, um, 
Well, Sebastian, you know, I want to continue to follow your career arc here with LinkedIn. Um, you know, we've went with sales development, you know, promoted to account executive. Can you bring us now to where you are now in your career and kind of give us that daily life explanation again? You know, what are you selling? Who are you selling to? What does the sales cycle look like and so forth? Yeah. So LinkedIn grew from 2014 to where we are now. We now have 750 million people across the globe with a LinkedIn profile. 750 million. We have 35 million companies with a company page on LinkedIn. These are your employers. This is a ton of data to analyze, a ton of data to make use of. Um, we found through the years that most employers did a ton. We came the leader in the world with helping people get hired, right? And finding jobs. Most people know LinkedIn that way. Um, but then through time, we were listening to employers and saying, well, we hired the right person. Now we need to train them. We need to figure out how we can increase their skills so that they fit our role, get promoted, are happy at our companies, this sort of thing. And, uh, we came in, in 2015, 2016 timeframe and said, well, we need to develop some sort of e-learning curriculum for employers. And we can develop this content ourselves because we have all the relationships with these employers and we can send them our content or we can acquire a company to help us reach that vision of upskilling employees. Um, so that vision became reality. We acquired a, a, a leader in the field called Linda and Linda you know, was uh, a platform, an e-learning platform that curated content or videos, courses for people to take to upskill themselves. I'm a marketer. I'm trying to learn Google AdWords. Let me access Linda courses and Linda will teach me. So we acquired a, a substantial course catalog from them, acquired the whole company and we rebranded it. It's called LinkedIn Learning. Now, uh, that's where I work today. I work in the division called LinkedIn Learning and I'm a relationship manager. I'm the farmer. I have a, a book of set accounts or companies that I collaborate with, I partner with on a daily basis. It's 50 companies and I have to essentially sell my product, LinkedIn Learning product to these companies. Now they already have an active agreement. They already have an active contract with LinkedIn. Right. One of our hunters sold them on the business of LinkedIn learning. They've been using this product for maybe a year or two. And here comes Sebastian to nurture the relationship and make sure the company renews their business for another year or two. Um, so we work on annual or two year contract basis within LinkedIn learning. And I support uh, some of North America's biggest nonprofit organizations. Um, so any big brand in the nonprofit space you can think of, what they are doing is helping equip their employees with LinkedIn learning and helping their employees develop new skills. I'm kind of the relationship manager within that process. Yeah. So you're talking about companies like United Way, you know, Boys Club, uh, big, United big firms Way, like the American Red Cross, American Bar Association, NPR News. Yeah. All of those. Okay. Yeah. And can you identify any favorite sales books or sales mentors that you would point our student athlete listeners to to develop their sales skills and understanding? I remember earlier you talked about the challenger sales, but specifically opine about what makes these resources great and why they're meaningful to you. Yeah, 
Honestly, the the great selling mentors that I've had have just been my managers, my managers over the years or um, my managers, managers, right? Like the people within the organizations I work that have been selling for shoot anywhere between 20 and 50 years. And I, I just try to pick their mind to find the, the wisdom and experience they've had. And I try to apply it. Now they have referred books, when friends and how to win friends and influence people. I mean, it's not really a sales book, but it is. How do you win friends? How do you win customers? How do you build trust? Um, uh, the seven habits of highly effective people, right? Another great book. Uh, the challenger sale is, is something I mentioned because most times customers are going to tell you no and you need to challenge them on data. You need to challenge them on information that exists of why they should change their train of thought or the way that they think and agree with you. So the challenger sale helped me overcome the dilemma of just always agreeing with a customer. When a customer tells me no, all right, I'm just going to go with them. And they told me no. Um, but how do I use data uh, to, to share a solution to get somebody to change their mind? That book was, was huge for me. Um, so yeah, those are, those are a few books. You know, I also want to talk about a little bit more specifically about LinkedIn and for anybody interested in working in sales at LinkedIn, which divisions have a sales force and what is LinkedIn looking for in new employees? What are the interview tips that you might have for our student athlete listeners too? Yeah. So th there are four divisions within LinkedIn uh, that I mentioned before, LinkedIn learning, LinkedIn talent, mm -hmm. LinkedIn marketing, and LinkedIn sales. Each one of these divisions is selling subscriptions, right, at the end of the day, to help employers and help consumers. So these four divisions have sales roles, and there are about 6,000 sales reps that exist out of, at LinkedIn, out of 16,000 employees. Five yeah. to 6,000 of them are sales roles. Uh, these sales roles encompass sales development, account executives, relationship managers, and customer success managers. So you can find a sales leader or a hiring manager within all of these sales job functions. You can find teams to reach out to. You can find sales reps like myself to reach out to and learn from. The idea, if you want to find a role in sales at LinkedIn, is to find which division speaks to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you want to help uh, people find jobs? Well, LinkedIn Talent Solutions is, is probably helpful for you. Um, are you really into helping sales reps sell? Is that part of your personal narrative? Well, you probably should work in sales solutions. Are you into advertising and marketing and working with brands in that way? Well, LinkedIn Marketing Solutions has a place for you. So find out where your personal narrative fits across these four divisions. Study these four divisions and, and figure out where you fit in. And from there, find out what sort of job function in sales you like. Again, are you the hunter? Are you trying to find business? Do you like the excitement of chasing uh, new companies on a daily basis and reaping the rewards of high commission? Do you like the farmer role where you're managing a subgroup of companies and helping them find success? Do you not like commission or chasing after business and you just like the success of the customer? This is a customer success manager. This person just partners with companies to make sure they're the, the company's finding success and using your solution, right? So these are just different job functions all within sales. 
Um, so find out where, what speaks to you first, and then try to find the people within these job functions that, that you resonate with and want to work for. Um, and a- another quick piece there is uh, LinkedIn is great for referral business. You're 20 times more likely to land a role if somebody refers you. So with that being said, it's not about clicking the apply button on every single application nowadays. It's about finding a trusted connection within LinkedIn or any company you want to work for so they can usher you into the company. They can refer you into the company. Matter of fact, they get paid when they do usher you in and you get the role. So these are a few things on how I approach it if I was a sales rep. Those are some absolutely valuable tools. I think that a lot of these yeah. athlete listeners just figured out how to find their way into LinkedIn. But I also want to talk about um, LinkedIn as a platform and as yep. a tool, which we've been alluding we wanted to talk about in this conversation. How can our student athlete listeners best use LinkedIn to grow their network, secure, secure the job they want and promote themselves professionally? I remember in the beginning of the conversation, you talked about that 150 character message that you use to do your outreach. Are there any insider hacks that you have for student athlete listeners um, to get the most out of LinkedIn? Great question. Many times I I help athletes understand their own personal interest. What is your personality type? What do you see yourself doing in five years from now, 10 years from now? What are your goals in life? And typically it's about just finding a a career that can support that goal to help you reach your your potential in that area. An example was a a student I was working with and they said, in high school, I was known as the shoe guy. I love Jordans and I have no idea what I want to do career wise, but I know I love Jordans. All right. Well, what is it about Jordans you like? It's the community that Jordans shoes help me build. Anytime someone sees shoes, the Jordan shoes on my feet, they point them out. I start a conversation. It helps me build community. I was always known as the shoe guy is what he told me. So I said, well, it sounds like you like to build community. And in some ways, community is kind of like networking, right? You're, you're building something and networking online allows you to build that community quickly. It also sounds that you like shoes and building the shoe, the, the, the shoe building process. So he kind of liked, we came up with him being a product designer. And um, LinkedIn was great because we typed in product designer in the search bar. We were presented with profiles, millions of profiles of people who were product designers. Uh, He said he liked the networking aspect of tech. So we looked up product designer within technology industry and we came up with some roles and people that he can reach out to uh, or apply to. Um, So I, I take the same practice for anybody that's using LinkedIn Find out what makes you tick. Um, Maybe it's in sports. Maybe it's outside of sports, right? Maybe you are into wealth management. Use LinkedIn as a search tool to do the research to find the people for you to connect to, right? Send those connection requests. Have those informational interviews like I was having when graduating from Berkeley to figure out, is this the right role for me? Is this the right day-to-day experience I want? And at the end of the day, is it the potential that I'm trying to reach one day in five years or 10 years? Can I see myself doing it? Um, So LinkedIn is no longer just let me click apply. It's now an ecosystem of people, jobs, of content of groups to connect with, of schools and alumni to connect with, um, all at your fingertips. It's up to you to use and manipulate that data for your liking. 
Um, so uh, again, with that sort of data that I mentioned before, I'm sure you can grasp it. 750 million people with a, with a resume and a profile, 35 million companies with a profile for you to connect with and learn about. So I've also been dying to hear what is that 150 character message to that you were sending? Oh man, I'd have to search through the archives. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was literally, I, I, I shared it with somebody recently. The number one response message on LinkedIn and the subject line is by mentioning the school or the school mascot. Mm. So it was something like the first message was, or phrase was go bears dash. Hi, I'm Sebastian. I run track at Cal and I see you did too. Let's connect or something like that. So it's always something like looking at their profile. I ran track, you ran track too. Let's connect. Um, and then once they accept the connection request, then you can send as many messages back and forth as you'd like. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be 150 character limit. So that's when I would come in with a more uh, a decadent email uh, to, to send to them. So um, hopefully that helps. Here's another quick plug. Most people don't know this. Um, there's a subscription on LinkedIn called Premium. Premium allows you to have access to message anybody you want on the site. You can send an in-mail message to them. Every employee at LinkedIn has five subscriptions, five premium subscriptions to hand out to their network for free. If I was a student athlete, I'd reach out to anybody at LinkedIn and say, hey, do you mind if I take advantage of one of your free premium subscriptions so I can find a job? so I can send messages to recruiters, um, and so I can connect with more people um, as I see fit. So that's a, that's a quick hack. People didn't know it. Most people don't. You can get a free subscription from anyone that works at LinkedIn. Yeah, well, I'm throwing that in my tool belt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I also want to touch on your side hustle, Forever Athlete, which from what I've read, looks to be an athlete reskilling business. Can you explain to us your mission with this business and what motivated you to start this and what's the value you're looking to bring to student athletes with Forever Athlete? Definitely. Forever Athlete is a community of, elf, of athletes that helps athletes transition to their next play. Community of athletes, we're essentially a team and we help athletes transition. How do we help athletes transition? It's from individual consulting sessions. Let me hear about who you are and what you do. And based off my experience, let me help you get there. Based off my network, let me help you get there. So we do that for individual students. Uh, we do that for groups of students. Maybe there's five or 10 that want to come together and have a session like this to understand what their next play is. And we do this for companies or businesses. So think of Cal Berkeley. Hey, we have an entire student athlete department and we need a workshop about helping athletes build their resume or finding a job. Well, let's work with Forever Athlete to do that. So we partner with those three groups, individuals, groups, and then companies. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm I want to share my experience. I want to share what I know about sales, what I know about the working world. I want to share my network with people to help them reach their job, reach their next play. Um, so Forever ha Athlete is now developing content in this field to help um, shed the light there too. Um, so it's a work in progress. It's nimble. I mean, I mean, that's why I love it. And that's why it's a side passion 
Uh, it, it changes frequently of what we tend to help athletes with, but we want to keep it small so we can help as many athletes as possible too. Now, I think that creates a pretty natural segue into shifting into the intangible benefits of the thousands of hours you invested on the track, training, competing, running, so much running. Our audience is very interested whether the sensibilities developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. So for that, I'm going to turn it over to Joe. Yes, yeah, Sebastian, we've alluded to this. We've even talked about it a little bit in this um, discussion already, but it's worth repeating again, you know, sort of in its in its own frame. You know, we, we hear a lot about the advantages embedded in the mindset of former athletes at work. Along, along with other disciplines, you know, time management and so forth that supposedly give former athletes an edge in the workforce. Uh, you know, uh, Stanford professor Carol Dweck has written about this in her well-known book, Mindset, talking about how these things turn into confidence and confidence turns into, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a virtuous upward cycle of success. So first, do you, do you think that this these sort of athlete mindset things giving people you know, who are athletes and advantage in the workforce is truth or hype. And if it's truth, like, do you feel like you have any, can you mention or reassert any of the uh, specific, you know, track and field superpowers that give you an edge in your work in sales? Yeah, it's truth. It's a hundred percent truth. Athletes possess the innate qualities that help them succeed in the workforce, period. Most of these qualities, again, I've shared this before, but we're not talking about like how leadership transitions to sales while we're on the soccer field. We're not talking about me screaming at my teammate from one side of the field to the next uh, to get my point across, to make sure they're reaching their potential. We're not not tying that to, hey, I'm going to be a good marketing leader at my company one day. Right. We just don't talk about that. But if we're doing these things on the field, since, again, we're five or six years old, I mean, you best believe those qualities are inside of us and they will come out forever. We are athletes forever. These skills come out in our families, how we raise our kids, um, how we maintain our health. Right. So, again, a lot of these qualities are overlooked while we are athletes in the sport but they transition, transfer completely into to any job, any career. Um, an example, um, I, I gave you a few, but right, trying to hype up your teammates and trying to motivate and influence them, influence them when they're having a bad day. That's exactly what it's like to, to walk into the office and see someone's um, slouched shoulders over their desk. And no one really wants to go over there, knows how to go over there to have that hard conversation with them uh, to, to look at the bright side. But as an athlete, we have that sort of conversation every dang day, right? Our coaches are having that conversation with one of our peers. So we're able to experience that real hand, take what our coaches would, would say day in and day out and again, share that with somebody in the workforce. This is, these are things that happen every day. And people all the time look to me to be that person. And I know, and I just look back on my time at Berkeley of um, just developing these skills and and now being the one to share them. Um, uh, Again, imagine running that 800, sprinting for two laps and knowing 
at the hundred meter, when there's a hundred meters left in every single 800, you get to a point where you can't feel your body. Literally. You can't feel your arms. You can't feel your legs. Every single race. There's never a time when you enter a race and you, you, yeah, in the back of your mind, you know, I'm going to face this monkey on my back. There's going to be a gorilla. My chest is going to puff up. I'm going to be breathing hard. I'm about to feel like I'm going to pass out. I'm trying to pump and can't get anywhere, but there's a finish line and I will finish. And typically when I do finish with all the practice I've had up to this moment, I'm probably going to set a PR. I'm probably going to feel like all the practice, all the hard work I've done to get here is going to be meaningful and impactful. It's kind of weird. There's no real term for that. You know, it's almost like you're a maniac trying to reach this goal on the track. (laughs) And, you know, when I'm talking about it out loud, you know, again, it seems like who wants to be that person? But doing that every single day since I was nine from to 22. um, Now, Tell me when there's a $100,000 quota in front of me for the month or for the year. Can I hit it? Well, again, let's put that monkey on my back. Let's put the systems and processes in place to hit that goal. And every single time I've exceeded it. I've gone to President's Club multiple times. Currently in my role right now, I'm 150% to my number. And it's for a reason. Um, I, I Most of my time, I just relay it back to... Yes, my upbringing, my family and support, um, but just being an athlete at Cal just made the difference. Yeah, we, we've talked actually in previous uh, shows about, uh, you know, the physical and emotional elements of like really working hard towards a goal. Uh, you know, you were just talking about like the, the last hundred meters, <laughs> what that feels like. But uh, what's interesting is like in, in a lot of the jobs now, like you don't have that physical tax anymore it's just the emotional tax which you know kind of feels not to say it feels easy but it's like easier (laughs) so (laughs) i think that (laughs) that's definitely one of the bits of uh, athletic training that that passes to say nothing of the organization you mentioned time management starting with you know at at the crack of dawn and ending at the end of night and getting more out of those hours than anybody else yeah yeah that sounds really yeah my, my, my wife calls me corporate kobe and, uh, <laughs> you know, I take that Mamba mentality and, and apply it to work um, and just, you know, imagine you're sitting next to most people who haven't had that mentality their whole life. And it's 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 easier than practice was. That's for sure. All right. Since we're talking about nicknames and you brought it up, uh, <laughs> Seabass, I mean, was it Christian Janikowski <laughs> that had that first or was it you? I mean, what? It, was, it was me. <laughs> All right. That's, that's an important thing for the record here that we're, we're just going to call out, you know, all, all, all Janikowski is, all, he's a, he's a copycat. You got that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let him all right. So, out. so, uh, as you know, you know, based on your, your business, you've literally called it out like 98% of our student athletes go pro in something other than their sport when they graduate from Cal. And then, even those who do go pro in athletics initially ultimately go pro in something else later in their career. And um, we've heard poignantly from this group that the transition in self-identity from athlete to like the post, you know, the civilian post sports you is really difficult. Our, our student athletes have described feeling untethered and deeply uncertain about who they'll become 
how life will unfold, you know, first steps to take and so forth. And we're wondering if, uh, how old are you now? 31. Okay. If the 31 year old self could like say something, some general advice to your, or career advice to your 22 year old self, what would you recommend and what would you say? If I were to look back on my 21, 22 year old self. Yeah, think about that moment when you were graduating and you were facing those same worries, like, okay, I just got injured. You know, I'm not going to be able to, to compete as a track athlete, you know, professionally. Like, how did you, what would you say now to that person then who was experiencing those feelings? It's kind of what Yoda says. It's like, don't try it, just do it. There is no try. You just do. And after a while, that do do becomes, or do not is what he do says. Do or do not. <laughs> there is no try. There's the exact line. Um, but like, put I would have put my hands in so many baskets out there. Like the the sky is like LinkedIn has showed me the sky is the limit. I've li- literally looked at tens of millions of profiles in the past seven years, tens of millions of people in their career. And there, there is no, you know, there is no limit to, to where like your potential can take you. The only way to like really understand your potential is by doing things, become not an entrepreneur, but an entrepreneur, do things that like really excite you that bring adrenaline to you like track or like track did to me or what your sport did to you find that adrenaline rush um, and, and find the, the job or career that aligns to it and do it and practice it and fall in love with the process and take the ride. But, you know, just kind of shooting darts in the dark and, and not trying new things and, you know, always thinking of a, a great idea, a bright idea, but never really getting around to doing it you're just going to always be left on this cliffhanger. So if I, if I were to look back, it would just be those thoughts that I, I thought maybe I can be a graphic designer. No, like download Photoshop and start doing it, start practicing. Um, I think I can, you know, maybe one day run a marathon, even though I'm an 800 meter runner, like, like put on your shoes, go to Tilden and run every day until you can run a, a marathon. Just do it. Just keep doing it until you find something that really sticks Usually the first one or two things you try out of college aren't, aren't going to be, you know, your career or your lifelong dream that you're fulfilling. So just keep doing, keep practicing. And, and, and sometime in due time, that, that thing will just hit you one day like, wow, this is it. I want to do this for the rest of my life. So that's that's really great advice. I, I read something the other day. It's it was I'm going to butcher the, the quote, but it was like, you know, move the body and your mind will follow. Yeah, which was was attempting to uh, sort of get to this like action, 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 just start going. Wow, man, Sebastian, that was great. I mean, how how can our listeners? This was I, I get the sense you've got a lot more to give. How can our listeners follow you and reach you? You know, just like personally on LinkedIn, Forever Athlete. How do they find that? Any resources that you may have uh, that you may want to share? How would they find those things? Definitely. We're coming out. I have a team of, of content um, people. We're all we're about to start dropping a ton of content uh, through Forever Athlete. 
So get get excited for that. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, it'll already be out. Um, so look me up on LinkedIn. It's the best way. Just search Sebastian Sam on LinkedIn. Uh, my direct email is Sebastian at foreverathlete.com. So you can reach out to me directly. Um, but again, the best place to connect with me is going to be LinkedIn. Uh, you can look at my road, my experience on how I got to where I am today. Um, and I'm always going to be able to point you in the right direction to somebody in my network. I can help you find the right person on LinkedIn. And that's the real goal. And I'm going to create that spark for you. My team is going to create that spark for you to find your next play. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. So I appreciate you guys so much for this opportunity. Well, um, man, thanks. thank you. Thank you for, for opening up your your wisdom book and just letting us hear all of this goodness thank you thank you thank you really thank you yes it's really been wonderful and uh go bears go bears go Go bears Bears. that was a comprehensive masterclass on sales and applying an athlete's sensibilities to post-sports careers some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were the valuable sales skills sebastian shared like how to navigate relationships to reach the decision maker and systematizing a schedule and outreach to break a daunting goal into practical steps. Those tangible examples of translatable experiences as as an athlete to post-sports careers, like breaking down that 800 meter run, motivating a teammate when they're having a bad day, and balancing the rigorous schedule of a Cal student athlete. That's not even to mention the inside scoop that Sebastian shared about LinkedIn, both from the perspective of working at the company and maximizing the networking tool. Sebastian generously offered to share his knowledge and insights to help you find the right career and connections. If you haven't connected with him yet on LinkedIn, I recommend you get brainstorming on that 150 character message right away to get connected and like he said, find your next play. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, Please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal, and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us, send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal Varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Sebastian. I'll see you in a few weeks on our next amazing episode. Thank you for listening and go Bears!